Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsors, UTS Animal Logic Academy and Wacom for helping make this podcast possible. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be chatting with Magali Rigorja, who's an animation supervisor at Animal Logic. Magali started her career in the early 90s in Paris before moving to California to work at George Lucas's ILM. As a 3D animator, she worked on movies such as Dragonheart, Star Wars 1, 2 and 3 and Pirates of the Caribbean. After almost a decade at ILM, she moved to Animal Logic in Sydney to become a lead animator on George Miller's Happy Feet. After many years of honing her skills as a lead animator, she moved into animation direction and worked on movies such as May of the B3 for Flying Bark and Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness. Recently, she has returned to Animal Logic as an animation supervisor. Magali is highly respected in the industry and she's a wonderful person. I'm excited about this one. Let's get into it. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. It's a real pleasure. So when hiring mid-level animators, what do you look for in a showreel? We're looking for a few things, and I would say diversity in the performance skills. If the animator can show that he's or she's comfortable with action performance or acting, that's great integrating a little bit of lip sync, if possible, a range of style from realistic to more cartoony. And on a more personal level, it's always good when people have a positive and open attitude to the work. How long should the showreel be and what quality of uh, finish are you expected in the animation? It's better to have a short showreel with very strong material than mediocre work. So I would say even if your showreel is only 30 seconds long, but have really strong material, it's, it's going to be great. As a rule of thumb, I would say put your best work first, so you grab the attention of the, of the recruiter, and finish on a strong shot as well. When doing lip sync, make sure your performance is clear. Don't add any music over it, so the recruiter can really see the lip sync and hear the dialogue. Are you interested in seeing their development work? Yeah, it's always nice to see that people have done a little bit of research or short references or drew thumbnails. Anything that supports their approach to the performance is great. If you were developing a personal project to put in your showreel, what would you try to show in the animation? 
if you're going to do a personal project, so a short film or a short piece, I think it's valuable to think about storytelling. What do you want to say? And then show that you are able to collaborate with other people as well. So it's great when people do everything by themselves, but at the same time, in our industry, when you are working in the industry, it's all about collaboration. Cool. What software do you use in the animation department at Animal Logic? We mainly use Maya. It's the main software for animation across many studios, actually. And we work on both Linux and Windows machine. So I know that uh, Animal Logic Academy have a collaboration uh, with UTS. Could you tell us a little bit about like the Animal Logic Academy uh, and what it does and how it helps people break into the industry? It's a great course that involves also um, professionals from the industry that come and give lectures sometimes, and they have a really good program that pretty much emulates the workforce. Yeah. It offers a one-year accelerated Master of Animation in Visualization. They are very proud to say that 90% of graduates find work within six months of graduating, which is great. Yeah, well, it's a pretty intensive course. Like, I've been out there and seen it. It's a better studio there than I reckon most of the studios. Like, yeah, it's better looking. It's also emulating the professional environment very well. Earlier, when I talked about collaboration, I know that they also really do that. They do project together. They collaborate. You know, everybody has their own task, and it's it's really good. If people would like to find out more, what should they do? So for anyone interested, you can apply to their upcoming course through their website. What movies, magazines, music inspired you when you were growing up? Let's talk about music first, which is not my industry, but a huge inspiration, a huge idol of mine was David Bowie. And I absolutely love everything he did, and that was really a good, a great influence. And I think he... I, the reason why I lo love him as well is because he was a precursor in a lot of his music. And did you like David Bowie when he switched in the late 80s? On Tin Machine? Yeah. I did because I'm a huge fan, but it wasn't the best. I, I acknowledge that. I wish I had got a chance to see him in concert. I got to see him three times, and once in Paris and twice in San Francisco. Nice. In San Francisco, it was in a fairly small theater, very intimate, and it was the best experience. Cool. What about TV? I don't remember watching a lot of TV, but I remember watching uh, Maya the Bee, actually, as a TV series at the time, which is why later on this particular IP was close to my heart. And then, of course, the Disney classics. What was your favorite Disney classic? One of my favorite Disney movies uh, is um, The Jungle Book. What was it that made The Jungle Book stand out? I don't really like musicals. Even when I was young, I didn't really care for musicals. But I thought this one was different because the music was very modern, very, very non-gender as well. It was very jazzy and, you know, it was not, it was, it was songs that girls and boys could sing along and it was really fantastic and the animation was great, but the ideas were really good. Do you think uh, your enjoyment of Disney movies got you to become involved in animation? Probably, probably. 
So what inspired you to like become an animator? I did a two-year course in France in advertising, and this is what introduced me to computer and computer graphics. So when I got my hand onto that, I, I really understood that I wanted to do something with that. So at the time, it was more 2D and illustration for magazines and, and things like this. But then I touched on 3D, and I, I really fell in love with it. I really, and quickly did I specialize in animation. I knew that's what, within the 3D world, that's what I wanted to do. If you could briefly describe your career path, that'd be great. I started my career in an animation studio called Phantom Animation in Paris, and that was in 1990. In 1995, I moved to ILM San Francisco, where I focused my work on VFX films. Um, and all throughout those nine years, I went from being a junior animator to a senior animator. In 2004, I moved to Australia and joined Animalogic as a lead. And this was an amazing experience because I focused on animated films. And about four years ago, I became an animation director. So in that time, have you had any failures and what did you learn from them? I did not have major failures. I think as human beings, we all make mistakes along the way. And especially when, you know, in a new role. Pressure is often high in our industry with, you know, having to meet deadline and creative expectations. So I would say... One of the things that is easy to do is to mismanage that pressure and pass it on to the team. This is definitely something I've done in the past and that I don't like doing and that I'm learning from and not doing again. As we move up the ladder and take on more responsibilities, it's always important to step back and remember when we were a stage earlier. So as a lead, it's important to remember when we were an animator. As an animation supervisor, it's important to remember when we were a lead or an animator. Do you think that makes you more humble? I hope so. What was the hardest thing you had to learn to progress your career? I would say letting go of the crew once we're done. Why do you think that that's a hard thing for you? Well, when you spend six months to two years working on a movie with a crew, you know, you, you're interacting with sometimes 40 people, 60 people, you naturally create bond with them and it's a journey, it's a collaborative journey. And once the movie's done, some people stay, but most people go to the next gig and it's hard to let them go. That's really great that you've had such a good experience that it's sad to let people go. Uh, that's a pretty good problem to have. Yeah. You don't really need to overcome that, do you? You do. Okay, so there must be something else that is like challenging for you to learn. Confidence then, I would say confidence is, can, can be hard to learn or... That's really amazing because like, you're a very confident person. Uh, are you saying that you've lacked confidence over the years? Not necessarily. I, I do sometimes, hopefully, like not hopefully, but as again, as human being, we always question ourselves. And maybe I do a bit more than other people, I don't know. <laughs> do you think that a lack of confidence has made it harder for you to progress over your career? 
Maybe, yes. Sometimes, at times, yes. It's funny. Uh, as I've got more experienced, I think I've got more confident. Uh, and the stuff that I used to worry about, I don't worry about at all. It's true, but the opposite is true as well. I think as you, you know, when, when you're younger, and that's, that's true outside of our industry and our jobs, you know, the youth is very confident. People, when they're young, they have no fear. They, they, are very, they can be very adventurous or, you know, and I think as we get older, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because we're going close to death <laughs> without being morbid or if because we have been hurt and we know how things can affect us. But I think as we get older, sometimes confidence diminishes. Well, I've found the opposite. As I've got older, I've become more confident, but I have become more risk-averse. Yeah. You know, you've got a lot more to lose, you know. True, true. So, I'd like to move on to ILM. Yes. How did you get the job at ILM, and is there a story behind that? I think around 1994, uh, I was still in France, and I applied to many studios in California because I wanted to go there. I actually took a trip for three weeks to meet with companies. But then, in the end, I don't think much came out of that. And eventually, I went to Annecy, and I met with Tom Bertino, who was at ILM at the time. We had a chat. I handed him my resume, and a little bit after that, I got a call from ILM. Cool. And then you just got on a plane and went over and started? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. An interesting thing was that around the same time I applied for my green card. You, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a lottery that you can do. Yeah. Uh, essentially, you're just sending your name, your age, your address, and then I was picked, picked up. I was selected. Okay. I moved to the States. I got my job and eventually got my green card and my citizenship as well. Wow. So you're an American citizen. Yes, and an Australian. Well, there you go. And a French. <laughs> You're a French-American Australian. Yes. Gets complicated sometimes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh. What was ILM like when you arrived and how did it change over the nine years you were there? Coming from a small studio in France, ILM was just this amazing place. Very creative, highly technical, and it felt big and very professional to me. A small detail, but in, in France, you know, we were working almost on a kitchen table with a, with a normal chair. And when I got to ILM, they already had very fancy keyboards and mouse and, you know, desks. And, and so it, it felt really, yeah, really professional. And did the technology and the way that you work change over the nine-year period? The work itself wasn't that different from, from what it is now. I don't remember, within the animation team, I don't remember that we had animation leads at the time, but, uh, and I remember the, the animation soup coming directly to my desk to give me feedback. So in that sense, maybe a more elaborate structure has been developed nowadays, yeah. uh, but we still have some you know, directors or anim soup coming and doing rounds. So no, it hasn't changed that much. The technology has pushed, of course. Yeah. I think maybe the main difference that is that now many studios can work on the same production. Yeah. Um, at the time, you know, ILM, they were taking on a whole film or all the CG part of the film. Yeah. Um, whereas now you can have 
up to 10 uh, different studios working on the same film, which is great. Like, it's a lot of people's dream to work at ILM, especially in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, was there anything interesting that happened, uh, you know, while you were there? Back in 1995, we had intranet to communicate amongst each other, but we actually didn't have internet. So we could not send an email or look for reference on YouTube from our own machine. So we had one dedicated workstation that we could book for half hour in order to, you know, send personal email or check out YouTube. And I think now when you think about that, it's just insane. I was thinking more about, you know, did you see any of the actors or go on the set or things like that? Yeah, well, I did that as well. We, if I remember correctly, it was for Pirates of the Caribbean. They built the boat yeah. completely real size boats so in the in the parking lot there was a massive uh, swimming pool that they built like a, an inflatable swimming pool on which the boat was and they shot a lot of shots there and then one night they lit it on fire because the boat needed to go up into flame and so it's the sort of thing that INM was great because they, they had the model shop at the time so you would see part of the set or, or stuff like that and that's that's amazing. Another memory that I have is on one of the Star Wars ep- ep- um, film, they, they built the set and we were invited to look at it. So you would go under a big plank and then your head would pop in and you would be in the set. You would be completely immersed yeah. in that little maquette. Uh, what movie was it? Maybe episode one, actually. Yeah. Maybe episode one. Did you go on the set when it was in action or anything like that? One day we were offered to be extras for the whole day. So that was on episode one, Phantom Menace. And we, they needed extras to fill the steps. How do you call it? The stadium. Yeah, the stadium. And so, yeah, in the pod race. So we would sit down and they would give us some... Um, costumes and some masks to wear and we were cheering and standing up and cheering sitting down and cheering and applauding and all that and then at some point they asked if people wanted to be mechanics and I put my hand up being the girly girl that I am I put on my overall and then I went down and you know I was a yeah I was a mechanic during the the race did did you make the edit you reckon it's impossible to recognize us because we are fully covered, obviously. You can't. You're not just from the same planet, so you can't look like yourself. But yeah, it was fun. And uh, other friends of mine who were quite tall, uh, they were selected to be trained as Jedi. And, you know, they, they trained them to fight. And yeah, it was great. All right. Well, I suppose we should talk about the work now. Yes. What characters did you animate in Star Wars? Well, mostly Jar Jar Binks and Watto. I remember animating Watto, the, the flying character. On Phantom Menace, the, um, Jar Jar Binks was the main character. He was in every single shot, so everybody had to animate him. Yeah. Uh, there was no way, no way around. But I might be the only person who actually liked him because I could relate to him. How could you relate to him? He was an outsider, you know, he wasn't from the same country, he was not speaking the language, and at the time, that, that was me. So, I thought we had something in common. 
Did you get a chance to edit the work on Yoda? I did, actually. I did. And that was very, very interesting because, well, obviously, Yoda is such an iconic character that at the time we needed to make him look and feel like the old version that everybody knows and loves. And so we needed to retain some of Frank O's puppetry. Facial-wise, the CG version had much more range in the eyes and the eyebrows. Yeah. I remember that we kept the mouth quite simple to, again, be close to the puppet. Doing a CG Yoda meant that he could do a lot more in terms of body movement, and the fighting battle is a great example of that. Now, one of the challenges was to find the right balance between having a 100-plus-years-old creature yeah. be very quick and agile while fighting and yet needing a cane to walk. I guess the, the logic behind is whilst he was in fighting mode, it was not quite his, his reality and he was using the force or something else to kind of get to that uh, level of agility. And how did, like, there was going to be a lot of people looking at Yoda's performance, uh, probably more than Jar Jar Biggs. Yes. How did you get through the process of in making it better and better until you got the, the final look? Well, first of all, we, we looked a lot at, you know, the old movies, the reference. Um, we have photographs of various Yoda in various scenes, and we would study the, the movement back then. And the process was exploring, doing some tests, showing our supervisors show, who would show George, I know some people, I was not part of that team, but I know some people, especially for the, for the fighting uh, scene, did a whole choreography and a lot of, you know, lots of exploration to try to find that right balance yeah. to animate Yoda during that time. And with Jar Jar Biggs, was there any particular scene that you enjoyed or find challenging or that is, you know, in the final movie? His ears were quite challenging because at the time we didn't quite have access to um, cloth simulation. I think towards the end we did. You got to remember, animation was on the movie for two years, so that's a long time. And I think by the end of the production we did have access to some ear simulation, cloth simulation for the ears. Um, now that was a long time ago. I, I might not remember completely well. And were you happy with the final result? And when you look back, uh, do you think it still stands up? I don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look back. And you did so um, uh, Anyway. <laughs> it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. I, I think for, at the time it was, yeah, it was quite amazing technology and, you know, ability to do a, a human-like character. Uh, and you also did ET. Yes. You did the uh, when they updated the. We actually introduced some of the deleted scenes from the original version. I actually worked on that. The scene in the bathroom where he kind of <laughs> yeah, there's a shot where he steps on the scale and look at his feet. I think that was new. Or he's halfway through the bathtub and he's wiggling his his feet, his legs. What was it? the challenges uh, on animating E.T.? Well, similar to Yoda, E.T. is also a very iconic character. And so, again, here it's about delivering a creature that people recognize. And, you know, you don't want to make it too clean, too polished, too perfect, because in the end he was also a puppet. 
Now, like Yoda, animating a CG character gives you more possibility in terms of body movement. Yeah. You can then make them walk. Was it hard to match the puppet's performance and make it like uh, something that was digital look linear? It's a long process. You, you need to really study. You need to um, dial it up and then dial it down. You need to check with, you know, you, again, check with other people, check with your supervisors, and then the final stay, say will be from the director, obviously. But, yeah, you need to observe a lot. Do you find that, um, like, you've increased your observational skills over your career? Yes, definitely. Your eye definitely develops. Yeah, so you think that observation is, like the key part of being an animator? Yes, I would say observation is uh, absolutely crucial. Observation and analysis as well. You can observe something, but you also need to analyze it in order to understand, break it down and understand how it works and how it affects certain part of the performance. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be a contractor and wants to move around from studio to studio? When you move country, you have a big challenge there. You, you are going somewhere where usually you don't know many people, so you have to rebuild your network of friends and support, um, let alone learning another language. So then you're faced with the challenge of adapting and adjusting to the new work environment. And it can be from learning a new pipeline, learning a new software, learning new ways of doing things. So I think... The thing to keep in mind is to be open, to be flexible. Things are never perfect, but they are done a certain way for a reason. Do you recommend that people should move overseas to improve their career? We are now more able to work from anywhere in the world. And since really the pandemic, we've seen many, many teams that have produced great work from yeah, all over the world. So I think maybe people will not move as much or if you want, you can still do it. But I, I don't feel like it's a requirement anymore. I think definitely the pandemic has opened up our, our world. Now I'd like to talk about being a woman working in animation. Has being a woman affected your career in animation? I think I've been very lucky because I don't think... Being a woman has affected my career in a negative way or a positive way. It's been neutral, and I'm happy it's been like that. When I first joined ILM, I remember many women in the industry, in the animation team and outside, many women in production roles as well. And I know some other women might have a different view on that and have experienced harassment, but I haven't, so I can't talk about that. And I have to say, the men in at ALM, whether they were my peers or my superior, no one treated me any differently because I was a woman. So I think I've been lucky. What I can say, though, is I have progressed in my career maybe much lower than your average man. Whether this was because I'm a woman or because of my personality, and it usually takes me a long time to feel comfortable enough to move on, move up, maybe. I think overall, it is true that women will feel less confident 
to move up until they have achieved things. Whereas maybe a lot of men are nat more natural, more naturally moving to roles with responsibilities. Yeah. Regardless of that, I think it is crucial that women are more represented in, in our industry, in any industry. And we should all make a conscious, conscious effort to do so by giving women true opportunities, by hiring us more often, making sure we are equally paid for similar roles, and being given the choice to being promoted and, and yeah, by telling female stories. Do you think that women who've had children, uh, possibly it's harder for them because of the nature of being a parent? I do think so, yes. And I haven't had children myself. I will not have children. And maybe because of that, it has been easier. It's, it's probably much harder when you, when you have children. What advice would you have for young women working in animation? You can do it. You can do it as well as anyone else. I'd just like to stop for a moment and thank our sponsors. Of course, please do. The UTS Animal Logic Academy offers a one-year accelerated master's in animation and visualisation. Students work on professional level productions to best prepare for specialised roles in well-known studios. The Academy's high rate of employment and award-winning projects turbocharge launching your career find out more at animalogicacademy.uts.edu.au have you had a good break are you ready to go yeah i'm ready so now i'd like to talk a little bit about character animation yes what's the difference between animating different styles of movies like science fiction or so from Star Wars to Dragonheart to Peter Rabbit to May of the Bee? Is the process different or is it the same? The process is actually very similar whether you work on a VFX film animating a hyper-realistic creature that does not exist like a dragon or animating a photorealistic Rabbit, which is a creature that uh, does exist, or when you work on uh, animated films with a more cartoony, imaginary creature. In the end, we still need to do some character development and understand who our characters are in order to ha animate them in alignment with who they are. So, you know, again, doesn't matter what, what character we are animating, we will define who that character is, where they come from, what are their quirks, uh, physicality, uh, character traits to really form who they are and, and how they move. Can you explain further uh, how that applies to a character in detail? If we have a character who's very confident and uh, tall and skinny, for example, and he might be very agile or he might be very um, awkward when he moves. And But he will move with confidence because his personality is that. Or when you have a character that's not confident, who's not a risk taker, he will move differently. So the process of defining the characters are is the same. Um, once you animate the characters, obviously animators need to 
keep on model and keep the style that has been defined at the beginning of the process. I want to have a real focus now on pre-production yeah. and developing your animation styles and your ideas. Yes. So once you've got your script and you've been briefed by the director, how do you go about creating your animation styles and the things that you need for production? On any production, the style, the animation style is defined before the animators are actually animating. So this is most of the time developed during the pre-production phase. It's usually developed with the animation director and some animators, but also with the input of the director. Yep. So any production will have a specific style, whether it's hyper-realistic or more cartoony, but this is defined yeah, in the pre-production phase. How important is the script when you're animating shots? Well, it's very important, although it's not rare that the script will change as we go on in the production. But obviously, this is our, our foundation. We, we, we built on the script. So in pre-production, are you animating yourself or do you have some animators on board? Animators work on that part as well, but not the whole crew. So usually when a production starts, we'll have a handful of animators and the exploring work will start. Yep. Most of the time as well, there will be a Bible, so a character Bible where the characters are um, defined and their personalities, their quirks, um, some reference are gathered, whether it's reference from other animated films or live action films. Uh, so by the time an animator has to tackle a shot, a lot of that has already been defined. Yep. That's not to say that there's no room for new ideas or, or sometimes something will, an animator will do something brilliant and the director will love it and then will try to implement that later on. But most of the time, definitely the style is already established. So what does the animator need to have, like, available for him to successfully develop a good concept and style? We have a scene kickoff where the director talks about that specific scene with all those shots, where that scene is in the movie, in the story, the character arcs, which will inform us on the character's performance of that specific shot. The animator will then spend some time to gather reference. It can be thumbnails if the person can draw, can be video reference that you gather from YouTube or acting out uh, your shot. And only then can the animator do the first pass blocking in 3D. For an animator, what's the best way to change directions on a shot if something's not working? They can pitch an idea within a shot. And it's always faster to do that without doing it in 3D first. So you're animating most of the animation ideas um, in 2D? Not most of it, but at the start, um, yep. you'll spend some time to, to pitch your ideas. or you know, Some people don't do that, but it's, it's definitely becoming a, a very um, common process. So what's the benefits of doing it in 2D uh, and what are you trying to explore? And on Peter Rabbit, for example, it, it's a, it was a lot about 
looking at real rabbits and how they how they move, how they even how they act sometimes, and finding elements that we can bring in our animation to make it more true as well. They're obviously not totally realistic rabbits, and they're not they're sort of human like. How do you get that balance right in the iteration process? For example, on Peter Rabbit, initially uh, the director, you know, didn't really want the rabbit to be on twos, and they, he wanted to keep really the realism of the the animal. Yep. But something didn't feel right, and it was also limiting us to doing great performance. So we had kind of established that when when the when the rabbit were speaking, when they were amongst each other, they were more human-like. So that's why we started putting them on twos and kind of gesticulating a little bit like human to make their performance more relatable, I guess. Yep. It's, it's about doing things in a believable way. Of course, rabbits don't talk, but that's what we have to work with and we want to do that in a believable uh, and touching way. When you're animating over footage, what's the best techniques and methods to uh, do this process quickly and efficiently, like in Peter Rabbit, for example? Yeah, so with VFX production, we, we have many, many ways of doing that. The environment will often be recreated in 3D, so you have an actual sense of space. Again, let's say Peter Rabbit, when the... When the rabbits were in the burrow, we had the burrow all recreated so we, we knew how far they could move and the limitation of the, of the actual space. And then we have renders where we can display the, the actual footage of the film and have our character integrated straight away. Creating the personalities of each character, uh, is that like is it important for you to try and find the personality and then animate it out very important and that's the phase that is done mostly in pre-production together with the with the, with the um, director where we will develop our yeah our characters um because again so peter rabbit um peter was really very outgoing very confident so the way he moved was reflected all that. Yeah. And his brother, Benjamin, who was not a risk taker and a bit of a bigger build, then he would move differently for his, because of his physical attribute, but also because of his personality. So it's extremely important to know, know the characters, even if some of those traits don't ever make it to the film. But as animators, we know who our characters are, so we can really animate them accordingly. On Maya the Bee, what are the key methods of understanding your character and then converting it into an animation performance? The character bible will be there to give us a good understanding of the characters, but on Maya the Bee, because this was an, an existing IP, an old IP, we had a, a true reference, so we, we didn't have to completely reinvent the character. So My Other Bee was a TV series in the 70s. So Maya was this very adventurous, a bit tomboy character. Um, she felt like she wanted to 
discover the world and go out. And her best friend, Willie, was the opposite. He was, you know, again, not a risk taker, very comfortable in the hive. So those general traits were already established. And we built on that, obviously, to make it a bit more modern and, and more appealing, give them a bit more, um, uh, I don't know the word, <laughs> blockage. Blockage. <laughs> Amplitude. <laughs> to give them a bit more amplitude on the screen and, and more depth. Okay, cool. How do you keep your characters consistent throughout all scenes in the movie? We've got a few tools for that. Feedback is the first thing. We can give feedback to veer the performance to be consistent. But also we have animation library in which we can store motion. So for example, with every project, when we start, we can generate some motion like walk cycle, run cycles, jump, walk and start, walk and stop, stop and start, stop and run, all those transitions. So we can build a motion library which will make sure that the performance is, is consistent. Now for more bespoke performance, it's about observing what has been done, observing what works, observing what the, the director likes as well, and making sure animators understand how they can replicate a similar style. Let's talk about animating dialogue now. How do you go about creating realistic dialogue performances for characters? So when animating dialogue, we like like when we animate the body, we always look at reference. This is really a, a huge part of our, of our job. We constantly look at reference. Now, of course, after years of doing it, we have a clear idea and we, don't, we can generate motion or mouth shape without always looking at reference. But to keep on style, like I said, we have tools that allow us to keep consistency. So the same that I was saying f when we generate Walk cycle, for example, we also built an extensive shape library for the face. So we generate phonemes, all the mouth shape for each phonemes. Sometimes those mouth shape can be can have variation, as in we can have a whole range of happy phoneme and a whole range of sad phonemes to make sure the way the character is going to say a O will be the same all throughout the movie, and it will be the same when he says a happy hole or a sad hole, if you, if you will. So we have an extensive mouth shape library, but we also have an extensive expression library. So the way, for example, on, on Maya the Bee, the way Maya is happy, maybe is broader than the way Willie is happy. And we, we need to make sure she, not that she's always happy the same way, because she can also have many variations, but it's still on model. And I think that's a, that's a big, big thing, to stay on model. Yep. Can you go a little deeper and explain how you use observation uh, to get the fine details of performance? For example, on uh, Happy Feet 2, when little Eric was singing at the end, um, he was singing, singing opera. And so we watch a lot of footage of opera singer to try to gather reference, but also retrieve physical elements, physical threat that would be part of the singing and that we could put back into our performance, body and facial, 
to reflect the intensity of the of the singing. Uh, so, for example, as as the singer is singing a long aria, the chest will expand gradually and slowly until the end, or the jaw will have a subtle vibration, or the tongue will be slightly lifted. All those things that will make the performance believable. And are you looking at the actors who are recording the uh, voiceover? Are you using them for reference? Yes, yes. When we can, it's actually a, a source of information. So when the voice actors are being recorded, there's also a camera that records their, their face and their facial performance. When that is done, we definitely, animators have access to, to that footage. Going back to ILM, Dragonheart was my very first feature film and also the first time I would do realistic lip sync on a dragon. And the, the dragon in Dragonheart had Sean Connery's voice, which had, had an accent. Yes, so we didn't have footage of him. I don't remember footage, but we, had, we definitely had photograph of him with different expression and different phonemes as well. Yeah. We were trying to make Draco look a little bit like Sean Connery. Yeah. Sometimes the accent will mean that you need to do uh, specific mouth shapes. And, and do you think that making it look more like Sean Connery and his mouth shapes increased the quality of the animation? Yes, it increased the quality and, again, it makes it more personal, more believable. Do you think that being able to perform the performance yourself is an important thing for you to have as an animator? So yes and no. I'd say a good actor doesn't make a good animator and a good animator doesn't make a good actor. So we can be great animators and not being able to act, but we do need to act out what generally what we are going to animate. So even more so over the last few years, this is a technique that has been really um, taken on. Why do you think this process has caught on and is effective? An animator will shoot reference of themselves or a friend or themselves with a friend acting out the shot that they need to do. And that gives a very good indication as well of the timing, how long it takes to, to do an action, how much force you need to put in an action. And so those things are interesting when you do them yourself because you have a better understanding of it. And so therefore you can then apply it in your work more accurately. So we're going to move on to the next section, which is directing. How did you feel uh, when you started your first day as an animation director? I could not believe it. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't say that. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's yeah, try sorry. again. I was thrilled. I was very happy to be given this opportunity. I was very happy to do it on my other B because, like I said, as a child, I used to watch the TV series, so it was a subject that was close to my heart. I had already worked on one of the films as a lead, so I had a pretty good understanding of the of the content and honestly I was just really excited to put my knowledge my experience in that new role. Once you got started in the role what were the key challenges you had in directing uh, May the Bee 3? 
when you go from being an animator to a lead and from being a lead to a supervisor, you are responsible for a larger part of the animation. So as, a, as an animator, whether you're junior or senior, you're only responsible for the shots that you're going to work on. As a lead, you are responsible for sequences, many sequences sometimes. And as a supervisor, you're responsible for the entire animation. So this can be quite challenging because you're also responsible for, like we talked previously, making sure the animation is consistent and it's at its best quality given the time that you have and the resources that you have. What were the methods you used to like keep the scale under control? So you work alongside the producer. You have a very tight relationship with your producer and you are the mediator between the director and the producer. So you, you want to, on a creative level, you have a brief from the director and you want to deliver the best work. But on a production level, you also have a schedule, a budget that you need to keep on track. It's a constant communication with the two and sometimes you, you got to say, look, this is the best we can do. So what's more important, uh, being on budget or getting good quality? As an animation director, I will always try to push for the best quality and then the director will accept or not and then at some point maybe the producer will say, look, we, we can get, we could get more quality but we don't have the time or yes, this is an important shot. Let's go over the schedule to make sure we have better quality. So having an alliance with the producer is an important part of being a good animation director. Definitely. Okay. So what advice would you have for a young uh, animation lead who was moving into animation direction on their first movie? Well, I'd say that Whenever we start a new position, there's a lot of pressure. Pressure is higher. Uh, we need to assert ourselves in this role. And I think it's important to take the time to step back sometimes and enjoy and not let that pressure get to us and not let that pressure go on to our team either. Um, it's quite important to try to deal with pressure the best we can it's such an enjoyable process that we need to make sure we, we appreciate it. How do you deal with pressure? It's very hard, to be honest. And for me, the best I can do is to know that I'm trying my best all the time. And if, if the pressure is such that I can't deliver more, how would I say that? Uh, I'm not sure. I think the pressure is mostly time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I deal with it. She's cracked under the pressure of the pressure question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay, can you give us some tips on dealing with pressure? Being prepared is definitely something I'd like to do. And sometimes when I feel like I'm not prepared and there, and there is pressure, I think the best way to tackle that is to take a moment to say, look, I'll need to think about that or I'll need to get back to you. Give yourself a buffer. The pressure will be there, but it doesn't need to be addressed at the time. I totally understand what you're saying. Like if you don't answer yeah. straight away, you can actually make a good decision and then come back to them yeah. with it. Uh, you're more likely to make a mistake on the spot. 
when there's pressure, they, they, there can be creative pressure and production pressure. And when there's pressure, we need to look at, okay, why can we deliver well? Is it that we need to, again, deliver better quality, but we need more time? Or is it that we need to deliver things sooner, but then there might be a drop of quality? It's always a tug of war between the two. We can always make things better, and we can always make things faster, but something has to give. And in the production of uh, May of the B3, as a first-time director, what mistakes did you make, and how did you learn from them? Because it was my first time in this role, I put a lot of pressure on myself, and I absolutely wanted to be impeccable and do the best job I could. And I think I forgot to enjoy. Yeah. I think I did not know how to let go certain things. And on one hand, I had the confidence to do it. And on the other hand, I liked that confidence. Okay. Did you feel more confident on your next movie? Yes. I had a fantastic experience on my other B. Yeah. Um, but I did recognize a few points that I thought I could do better for myself, but also for the production. So I actually approached the second production and my second time in this role with more confidence overall and as a result I felt like the collaboration with my team member or other department went better. And what were the things that you improved for the second production? I think it was more my the way I was asserting myself um, and it's not to say that I was um, more pushy or I just I don't, I don't know how to express it. I was just more confident. I knew more what I was doing, and that resonated well with my peers. Yeah. There were technical aspects that I did better. So one of the things that is often a, a critical point in animated films is bidding and budgeting the crowd. Because in the end, we have crowds, but we somehow always end up needing more to really make sure you know, the village feel, seems filled with people or the, the arena f seems filled with people. Yeah. On my other B, I think this was definitely a challenge at the time. So when I started the next production, I, I raised that immediately. I said, look, we, this movie, I can tell there will be need for crowds. The studio had never done that before to that scale. So I definitely tried to raise that topic and talk about it with other departments. And in the end, Chicken Hair had tons of crowds in the arena and in the village, and we managed it the best we could. Yeah. It was hard, and it's always challenging, but I, I am proud of what the animators did. I'm proud of what the, the crowd department did, because when you look at those scenes, they feel full of people. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. All righty. So when you moved on to Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness, just like saying that, it was going to be an in-person job, but then it turned to be remote. Yeah, explain how you adapted to the remote environment. That was definitely interesting. It was not planned at all. And I imagine a lot of people were in the same position at the time. Like you said, I was set to go to move to Belgium and, and be with the team. So it was challenging also because I was the only person on this side of the world. So challenges were the fact that we never worked like this before. 
We used to always do things together in the same room, in the same building. What practical things did you do to make uh, the remote working work? The company did extremely well. They provided their artists with workstation and everything they needed technically to work remotely. So that was great. And I think because we are pretty much all very passionate and we love what we do, people just embraced it. And with the technology being what it is nowadays, it's amazing because we can, not only we can communicate instantly, doesn't matter where in the world you are, but we can also see each other. So for me, communication was key and is always key whether you are in the studio or outside, but even more so when you are uh, working remotely because it can feel quite isolated as well, especially for junior people, people who start in the industry and all of a sudden they are in their living room animating. What's the key message you use to make it a better experience for everyone? Communication is key. Making sure people are engaged, people are involved all the time. Which experience do you think is better, online or in person? I actually think we, because of the pandemic, we got to a point where we give people the choice and we give people that flexibility. Definitely for the artist, I think having that flexibility is wonderful because sometimes you produce better work later during the day or not to say that you can, you know, you, you still need to respect some work hours. But I think even giving flexibility to, to artists is great. Also, you are less distracted. So sometimes you produce more focused work. We need a balance. We can't. It, was, it felt very lonely for me as well. And I, you know, some animators I ne- actually never met. And it's really sad because I also, I'm a people person. I like my team and I want to create a relationship with them. So that was challenging. Because I was anim directing from here, obviously the time zone difference was very hard. And I usually work very late. My, my first meeting sometimes was at starting at 6 or 8 p.m. I would start in the morning at nine o'clock to see how much work I had to do to gauge, you know, how long it would take me. And I would start straight away. Then I would take a longer break during the day. And then I would be back online to make sure I had a few hours overlap with the animators. And how did your directing style change when you were reviewing people online rather than in person? I don't think my style changed per se. I think I was still giving feedback in the same way, but with the help of technology, obviously. I had to to give written feedback rather than verbal feedback. So when you're in a studio, you have dailies, you gather in a, in a theater, you, you watch the sequence, for example, collectively, you can talk about it and you give your feedback yeah. vocally, verbally. Yeah. So because I wasn't there, I, I had to write down all my feedback. So it was harder in a way, but at the same time, it was good because when the animator would arrive at the studio, they would have the feedback straight away, first thing in the morning. So they were ready to address it. So you didn't do your dailies like all of the group online? We did. So we had dailies. We had our director reviews online with video conference. So there was direct interaction with the animators and the director. That was good, yes. 
Do you find it harder to deliver bad news over the internet or? Let's face it, it's always hard to deliver bad news, whether it's in person or on, on internet. And I would say, if I'm going to deliver bad news, I would actually get on a call to make sure I do that face-to-face. Because, uh, yes, the tendency would be to, to do it via email or chat, but if you mean bad news as bad feedback, yeah. <laughs> this is part of our job. We always, you know, feedback often is... It's, it's not negative feedback. It's a critique of the work. So it's eventually to make things better. But it does happen that sometimes you see something that is absolutely not suited for the shot. And I guess my way of doing it is first to try to understand why the animator did that. And, you know, if, if, there's, if there's a reason behind it, if the animator wanted to try something or hadn't understood something, sometimes you get surprised as well. And, and if you know more about it, you can go, well, actually... I didn't read this, or that was not executed in the way that made me understand what you wanted to say. So let's try to do it differently if you think it's, a, it's an appropriate idea. And sometimes it's not appropriate, or it's not what the director wants. So you go, well, thanks for trying that. Appreciate. Unfortunately, even though it's very well executed, it's not what the shot needs. And you try to make it non-personal. So if you're doing the written feedback and you're doing like basically rejections of animations, uh, you, you write that and instead of delivering it online. Yeah, I would literally write, you know, thanks, thanks for doing that. Um, it's well done, but, um, you know, it was in the brief or can, can we have a chat and talk about it? Yes. Yeah, cool. And yeah, what other methods can you use to improve the process working remotely? To be honest, I think the technology is there and it's definitely helping us. And like I said, you can, you can talk in real time, you can see people in real time. What I find really challenging as well is keeping the motivation. When you have everybody in a studio, you can turn around to your peer and show your work and get your peers' feedback. Or if you have a question, you can have immediate answer. Or you can go on lunch together or you can have a drink or... There's a much more social level to our interaction. Yeah. That is definitely one beauty of our field. Now, when you work remotely, especially for junior, again, it can feel quite lonely, and also you can feel very detached from the work. So at Animology, for example, uh, regularly we have screenings, or we, they have uh, something called animology where you, they show everybody's work across the studio and different production. And that's really important to kind of remember what you're doing and why you're doing it. So if you're working on a shot for a few weeks, you, it's easy to get disconnected from the bigger picture. So this is one of the challenges, I think, with remote work, is how do we make sure we give that back to the animators. How do we make sure we allow time and we provide screening of the movie or what other department are doing online with an online format? And do do you do like social drinks and that online? Like, Not really, no. No. Um, No. I do the young, young career dinners and 
drinks and we were doing them online during the shutdown like quite often yeah and they were really good it was really good at bringing us together and now we're doing them in person yeah uh, and it's also really good small little groups socially like yeah it can seem forced if you do it the wrong way but if you do it the right way it yeah it really works yeah another thing that is challenging is when we're all working together in a studio we have the opportunity to see our work on the big screen most studios have a theater room. Animologic definitely has a couple. So when we do dailies or director's review, we screen the work in a theater so the work is projected on a big screen. Because when you work on your computer, as big as your monitor can be, it's never going to be as large as a screen. Yeah. And so it's very important to see your work on the big screen because then all of a sudden it takes a, a different scale. And you know, an IDAR that seemed okay might feel really big on, on the big screen. That's something that on, on the last production I, I struggled with because I felt like we did not have opportunities to watch the work uh, on the big screen. You didn't like have like a 50 screen, 50 inch television you could... I have, I have my 12 inch computer. <laughs> Alrighty. So on that, I'm going to move now on to balance. Do you think you can become a, like a high quality animator in film and television by only working 45 hours a week? Yes. 45 hours a week? Yes. <laughs> you don't think that it requires more practice? And... No. No? No, actually, I'm a big adamant of... It's, it's not because you're going to put more hours that you're going to become better. I think uh, it's really important. It's really crucial to step away from our work, whatever the work is. We need, to have a, we need to have a fresh eye on things. We need to go back to it and look at it as a new, new piece of performance because we spent a few hours doing something else. Cool. When I started at ILM, actually, I think we were doing 12 hours a day. And... I remember going home and thinking, oh my God, what I've done is not good. And, you know, and then I would look at it the morning after and not everything was good, but it was not as bad as I remembered it. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that a lot of people get where they are through like unbalanced work hours. Yes. And yeah, it's like trying to figure that out. You obviously did it. You work 12 hours a day. Yeah. That is the dilemma, I say. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you if you had any hobbies uh, outside animation that help you to be balanced? I do. I I do. I have a lot of hobbies. Um, I've always been really very active with my, with my hobbies. I've always had something on the go. All of them are very hands-on, uh, very tactile. The main one these days is uh, ceramics. So I've started doing ceramics about five years ago. And I found that extremely satisfying it's a great creative outlet it's very tactile it's very meditative and and i can drink out of it <laughs> i saw that on instagram i wasn't sure if that was you or not uh all those amazing plates and cups uh yes yeah so that was me and do you fire them at home no i don't i, I don't have a kiln but i i have a i bought a pottery wheel fairly early on so I do most of the work at home, and then I bring everything to a studio. There's a couple of studios close by. I drop off my work, and then they fire it once, and then I go back, and once I have 12, 15 pieces, I spend half a day at the studio, I glaze everything, and then they fire it again, and I pick them up. 
Yeah. And and I put them in the cupboard. Well, they look really amazing. Like thank you. High quality. Like thanks. Uh, do you sell many? I don't sell many, but I do sell my work. Uh, I have an up- upcoming um, market. And do you find this helps you turn off, or do you still think about animation when you're on the wheel? No, it definitely helps turn my brain off. It helps me reset, really. It's like anything, you know, sports is the same. It's, it really is a reset. The reason why I love poetry and, and other crafts is because I do miss that um, manual aspect in our work. And I've always been big on using my hands to build things and make things. So uh, with animation, you know, before you had people who did claymation, I guess they had that. Yeah. They could tick that box, but I never, I never did that. Yeah, and do you feel like it's a replacement uh, for, like, because I find editing the podcast a replacement because I'm not on the tools anymore. Uh, I get to do that manual task. Do you find that it's a replacement for not being on the tools near directing? Maybe it's something that I haven't realized that it is actually. I don't miss animating. I try to stay close to the box because I want to stay connected to the animator's work, but I don't miss animating. And now as an animation director, I find satisfaction and joy in leading the animation team. What would you like to work on in the future? I prefer to work on original stories, but that's rare. I am really happy where I am right now as an animation director. Uh, It took me a little bit to get there, but this is a position that I really enjoy. I have, so far, I have no intention of directing, um, but I really hope that I can continue to do this role for a long time and on, on... Different movies, different productions, different messages. All righty. So we're near the end. Uh, so we're just going to reflect. If you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself some advice, what would it be? Remember to, to enjoy the process. Most of us, we do it because we love it. And it's a fun job. It's a great job. And we are also giving entertainment to people, to kids. So we should enjoy it ourselves. That's a lovely sentiment to end on. I've really enjoyed the work today, uh, doing this podcast with you. Uh, And yeah, thanks very much for sharing your knowledge with the community. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure. It was my first time doing your podcast and I'm I'm really honoured that you asked me to do that. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is a motion. Bye-bye.